Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands. What do you have for us this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, I thought for the sweltering month of August, I'd cover a couple of summer movies, one from Japan, one from the United States. They're both from the 60s, and uh, they're also about juvenile delinquents. These are really weird gems of films, and I hope that you will uh, enjoy me talking about them and uh, showing you some music and some clips from them. Hopefully you'll be, um, you'll be uh, inspired to seek them out. I will have an interview with Aditya Chaudhry, a sitar player who will be performing as part of a band at the Chinatown Street Festival on August 17th. Hi, um, my name is Jenny Kwong. I'm with ArtsLink for CGSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And so I'm here with Aditya. Um, he will be performing the sitar a little later. But uh, first, he's going to talk about, um, I guess, how you got interested in the instrument. Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and honor. Um, the the journey for uh, for my journey with sitar started actually uh, uh, in twenty twelve. Um, I was uh, I was very fascinated by the instrument. Always, my my mother she actually played, and she uh, she was she was a played at a tremendously talented level. Um, but growing up, I I, I didn't have much uh, interest in, in in Indian music. Never mind Indian classical music. And then at some point in my life, um, I don't know what it is. I, I really can't pinpoint what it was or what point it turned around. But um, the music started really uh, um, fascinating me, and I felt really connected to my roots. And then in 2012, I found uh, this uh, Indian music ensemble. This was in Edmonton, and it's taught by Sharmila Mathur, who uh, performs all around Cal uh, uh, Alberta, actually. And and I saw her group of, of students uh, playing the sitar, and and you know they were they were from all walks of life. They weren't Indian. They were they were you know white students, Asian students, black students, all 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 different walks of life playing this instrument. So I said that you know. Um, I think I'd like to have a try at it, and 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 I I, I got started that way, and then kind of afterwards, my mom she started teaching me, and and from there it just grew on, and 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 I like to say I'm I'm, I'm a lot self-taught as well, so I, I listen to a lot of maestros play, and then I try to get inspiration from them. Okay. And for people who are not familiar with the sitar, can you describe it? Absolutely. So sitar actually comes uh, um, from Persian roots. Um, I, I might be butchering the pronunciation, but it comes from the Farsi word uh, sitar. And it originally had three strings, and then it evolved into the sitar, which now has seven or, or, or a few more, depending on the style you play. Um, sitar is a, a very traditional Indian music instrument that is made from wood, and the base of it, believe it or not, is made from pumpkin, gourd. Um, it's hollowed out, and it's dried for, I, I believe, several days or maybe even several weeks. And then the wooden uh, um, uh, flat part where the strings go on and where we pluck are attached to the base of it. And, and because of the, the size of the pumpkin, because it's so big, um, it allows for a very robust and, and, and very, um, you know, a big sound. Um, and and it's, it's very much an acoustic instrument. Uh, the sitar has lots of frets. And what makes it very unique is are the frets can be moved to adjust to um, exactly the sound you want. So in Indian classical music, a little bit of history of that is, uh, uh, as opposed to Western music, um, you can choose your scale. So if you, you know, for example, you're do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, if I had to. So it's do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, right? Yeah. 
um, you can switch that. So you can start your uh, scale at a C sharp, and it's do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. Or you can move it to C, do, re, mi, fa, so, so, do, 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 re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. And then you can keep moving your first one. Or in uh, Indian music, it's sa, re, ga, ma, pa, da, ni, sa. So your sa, or your do, gets moved based on that. So um, sometimes the notes are flat, sometimes the notes are sharp, and so you can move the frets so that when you play, it falls exactly where you want. And the last really cool thing about the sitar is that it can be pulled. So it's not staccato, you can actually pull, and which is called a mean technique, and by pulling each fret, you can get up to four to five notes higher up. And that's what makes the, the sitar such a unique and, and profound instrument. And um, when learning an instrument, what sort of exercises do you have to go through to starting out? Oh, um, I think the first basic one is uh, getting used to sitting because it's it's an instrument played sitting down. And uh, one of the biggest thing I think whenever uh, someone asks me, well, you know, can I hold it or can you teach me some basics? I love uh, their reaction when they find out that you actually don't see uh, the front of it. Um, when people think of the sitar, they think of the guitar, and you know how you can see where your fingers are placed. You uh, actually can't see that in a sitar. It's um, uh, you you kind of hold it so that your thumb uh, is kind of in one plane so your finger and thumb are in one plane and so you hold the sitar from the back and based on where your thumb is you know exactly where you're in the front um, so a lot of uh, uh, um, I think patience is required because uh, you also have to slide so it, your fingers hurt um, yeah, my mom always said that if your fingers haven't bled yet you haven't learned <laughs> so um, you know it has bled once but not nearly to the level that she expects uh, but yeah a lot of patience a lot of perseverance and I think really understanding the basics of Indian classical music because it's not a it's not passed on through writing um, Indian classical music is passed on through listening and, and, and singing and then playing it so there's seldom uh, notes and, and written things for you to follow but more so you the way you hear the way it's, it's it's taught and, and shown is how you depend on your uh, depend on learning and catching it. And so, uh, does that mean it's uh, improvisational? Absolutely. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about Indian classical music. So it's the raga system or rag, and um, it's kind of like frameworks and uh, rules. So, for example, if I tell you that you know you have to play, um, uh, so rags are based on the time of the day. So morning ragas produce sounds that are very serious and more meditative, whereas, you know, in the afternoon it gets a little more relaxing and the evening ones get more sweeter um, and more romantic, if you will. Um, and uh, raga music is uh, based on, so it's a, it provides a framework. So let's say that you can play the first, fifth, and sixth note, but the fourth one has to be a flat when you're going up the scale and the sixth one is uh, a sharp when you're going down the scale, for example. And, and that makes a rag. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate a little bit because uh, I know it's a little hard to just uh, imagine if you just just uh, say the theory. Um, in the evening, there's a very famous rock called Bhupali. And I'll say it in the Sare Gaz instead of the Dore means. Um, and it uses just these notes. So Sare Ga Padha Sa Sa Da Pa Ga Re Sa You notice the whole scale has Sare Ga Ma Padha Ni Sa Sa Ni Da Pa Ma Ga Re Sa But I only use the select few notes. Sare Ga Padha Sa Sa Da Pa creates a sweeter sound and this is your framework so I can go ah, 
And as long as I stay within this framework, I'm fulfilling the rug. Now, this is one of the you know, more simpler rugs where it just gives you the ascending and descending. Some will say, while ascending, you have a different set of notes. While descending, you have a different set of notes. While ascending, you must go up halfway, come back a little, then go up completely. Descending, you can come completely back and, and, and so on, so on. And I guess um, uh, you you said you play as part of a group. Can you talk about? Absolutely, that? I, I'm I'm really excited to announce uh, um, I'm part of this uh, really great Calgary group of of artists called Madhuban Performing Arts. Uh, Madhuban started under the creative direction of Ishita Singla, who happens to be a, a University of Calgary uh, alumnus. And <coughs> excuse me, uh, she started. She had this vision for creating a group that would bring the South Asian arts to Calgary and do it in a way that would promote it and bring this art to the community. Um, and so she started as a dance group and then it evolved into a dance and music group. Um, I am joined with some fantastic co-musicians. We have uh, the piano, the drums, the tabla, which is a, uh, an Indian percussion instrument. Uh, we've got the violin, the flute, um, and, and you know, all sorts of uh, great uh, music going on, as well as all, uh, um, you know, all of uh, us in the group are, are, are very skilled mu- uh, singers as well. And we, uh, with the coolest part of the group is we all bring in a different genre or expertise uh, to the group that makes us very, very unique. So um, you'll definitely catch us all um, at the performance as Madhuban Performing Arts. And, and, and we're really, really excited to um, kind of bring everything we got to that stage. And you'll be performing at the Chinatown Street Festival on August uh, 17th. Correct. And so will you, is that this your first time there? Yes, it is actually my first time. I've uh, I've I've lived in Calgary, uh, you know, for a long, long time. Uh, but I, I uh, I've I've been to the festival very seldom. Um, definitely uh, didn't uh, experience it to its fullest. I must admit. So I'm 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 extra excited and then even looking more forward to experiencing the festival and and of course uh, getting to participate and be in it. Um, you know, it's a dream come true. All right, and I guess. Um... Uh, what are the next steps after the festival? What will your group be doing then? Um, that's a great question. Uh, well, we're we're always looking for more opportunities to perform and showcase uh, uh, not only our talent but bring the 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 great music of India and South Asia to uh, more stages and platforms. Um, uh, we we we're probably going to look or you know have performances to celebrate things like Diwali and and other uh, big uh, milestones or annual events that happen uh, in and around Calgary, um, as well as we're trying to go to this on online platform where we're trying to create music and just sharing it with the whole world through mediums such as YouTube and social media and things like that. So catch us on all of that. <laughs> all right. And you said you prepared a two minute uh, piece to uh, play today. Yes, I did. I actually uh, prepared just a bit of Rag Bhupali, the same rag that I uh, that I just hummed a little while ago. I figured because given the time of the, the day, the evening, uh, um, it'd be an appropriate rag. And, you know, um, it's also an improvisation. So um, I, I, I hope you enjoy it. And please forgive any mistakes you hear. Thank you. 
That was Aditya Choudhury playing the sitar. Aditya will be part of the Chinatown Street Festival as a performer on the stage on 3rd Avenue South on August 17th. The festival is from 11am to 7pm and will feature Aditya and his band as well as many other multicultural performances. The theme of the festival this year is the Silk Road Experience. The festival is highlighting and engaging a greater range of cultures on the historical trade Silk Road that connected China to South Asia and the Middle East. There will be food from Chinatown and local restaurants, arts and crafts, a market, as well as uh, beer gardens. There will also be the Calgary Flames Family Zone, for more info on the Chinatown Street Festival, see the website visitcalgarychinatown.com. And now, it's my turn to talk about a couple of juvenile delinquent movies from the 1960s, one from Japan and one from America. So here we go. I hope you enjoy, and you can watch these for free, don't forget, on YouTube. Lord Love a Duck. It stars Roddy McDowell and Tuesday Weld. The former, previously known to me only as Cornelius, acting in chimp costume in the Planet of the Apes series. I'd never even seen his face before this film. Uh, and the latter having a fraught history as a teenage sex symbol. Tuesday Wells starred in a film called uh, Sex Kittens Go to College, a.k.a. Beauty and the Robot. And also, check out what she said about turning down the lead role in Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. In this broad and brutal satire, we get to observe the unfortunate mix of two different types of sociopaths. First, the realistic-seeming Barbara Ann, who is the first to describe her motivation. Here's a clip. Last year at Longfellow, I won everything. Head cheerleader, Miss Longfellow, everything. But, you know, they tore the building down and they've consolidated and hardly anybody's going to know me here. And I want them to. I want it to be the same. I want it again. You know, Mom sent my picture into the 17 National Smiling Contest, and I won runner-up. Everybody said I should have been first, of course. Everybody has got to love me. Everybody. This is my year. My horoscope says I'm going to be famous. I'm a Capricorn and I can't miss. I deserve it, too. I've been very good. Haven't done bad things with boys. Well, a little. But not really bad. And only if I liked a boy. She admits this to our anti-hero, a young man, McDowell was bloody 35 when he played this high school senior, uh, who is obsessed with Barbara Ann. He seems to be able to instantly manipulate every situation to his advantage, and we see him jailed for what we come to discover is murder right at the outset of the film. The story we get in flashback is an irreverent, loftily held middle finger, and the damn thing even bills itself as an act of pure aggression. Here's some of the trailer. Lord Love a Duck looks like a beach party picture, but it's actually a booby trap. Hey, hey. Lord Love a Duck is against teenagers, their parents, movies, cars, school, 
and several hundred other things. Based on a novel and screen written by the guy who did The Manchurian Candidate, Lord Lovaduck is, I believe, an overlooked masterpiece, uh, featuring clueless yet resolved authority figures who are given space to spout unctuous bullshit like this. The Lord is always listening, but suppose you ask for a promotion and a raise on your job, and the Lord knows you'd really be better at another job. Does he give you that raise? No. As a matter of fact, he probably gets you fired, so you're forced to think and seek work more suitable to your capacities. The answer is so obvious. Prayers are answered. Because whatever happens, that's the answer. Well, I think maybe this is as good a time as any to wrap it up for tonight. Now, next Tuesday night, we'll talk about heading down the home stretch. Oh, cover things like the Christian attitude toward the automobile knowing how and when to say no without actually offending. And finally, if time permits, is it love or is it sex? Six sure-fire ways to tell the difference. Another thing I like about the film are the long takes of Tuesday interacting with others. She's really good, and I'd like to play you an example of a situation that brings her back to Alan for more help. It's very passive-aggressive. Oh, it's good to get out of these clothes. You know, oh, that is a pretty sweater. But, but that's Acroson Silipolitex, isn't it? You know, that stuff is great. It's so, <laughs> so much better than the cashmere like I have. And it's so much cheaper, too. You know, it's amazing what the Japanese do with chemicals today. And if, yes, there's washing instructions right inside. No. You know, you can burn it, you can spill anything on it. Just burn it. it right away. You can burn it? Sure. And you know, it's moth proof, rust proof. Wait a second, I just. Hey, is that Billy Gibbons' pen? Oh, yes. Is it really? He, you gave, he tried to give it to me last year. No. Is he a crazy kid? Yeah. He I is. Just Billy. How'd you get it? He's <laughs> <laughs> such a great kid. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You know, you seem like a very nice girl. We have a club around here. It's called a cashmere sweater club. You, you ought to drop by sometime, meet some of the girls. All you need are 12 cashmere sweaters to join. Really, do that. Come by some evening. Oh, good. <laughs> 12 thank cashmere you. sweaters. Yes, good, thank you. Alan, will you stop spinning? I need 12 sweaters to belong to the club, cashmere sweaters. Now, this thing I have on isn't even cloth. It's some kind of chemical. That. that is the formula for your sweater. Two parts acrosone, one part silipoly latex, and water. Oh, lots and lots of water. Oh, you know, this damn thing doesn't even burn. Oh, of course it does. No, it doesn't. Sure it does. If I remember correctly, the burning point for acrosone is 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which does, of course, indeed, for all practical purposes, make it fireproof. Now, this is not funny. What am I going to do? You have a father, don't you? Of course. And he lives in Oxnard somewhere, and he sells things. Now, divorced parents always feel guilty. Now, if you could make your father feel really guilty... Guilty? <laughs> really guilty. Let us say, uh, guilty squared. Guilty squared? 
father plus divorce times guilty squared equals Guilty enough for 12 sweaters? Molly Muck writes sweaters to the power of 13. Well, I don't believe it. <laughs> it's the new math, Bob Ryan. Now, about Alan, a master manipulator, but who gets himself put in prison before the film even really begins. After another cool opening credit sequence, here's how we meet Alan. The beginning, of course, is Barbara Ann Green. Dear, sweet, simple-minded Barbara Ann. Barbara Ann. Whose deepest and most heartfelt yearnings express with a kind of touching lyricism the total vulgarity of our time. Before the events of Lord Love a Duck, we come to understand that Alan is known and somewhat feared by his old principal, played by Harvey Corman in a, a great example of what makes a character actor. And he has a good marquee value for this new school, which is simply called Consolidated. Everything is consolidated in this film. He also knows about and is obsessed with Barbara Ann and enters in a quote-unquote deal wherein he gets her anything she desires in exchange for nothing. In one of the odder, sadder, scarier moments of the film, she asks him just what he gets out of this deal as she has just told him to get her a boy she likes. His response, and it comes as his face for the first time approximates something like confusion and sadness, is, I think of things. Folks, the character of Alan, Molly Mock, is a movie psycho of such understated, rationalized malevolence that he, in my opinion, tops General Jack D. Ripper played by Sterling Hayden in Dr. Strangelove. In the film, he refers to himself in the third person as Molly Mock. That's me, Molly Mock. A bird thought to be extinct, but isn't. Molly Mock nearly maims the high school quarterback, uh, barely break breaking a sweat. He insinuates himself with Barbara Ann's uh, crush's mum before she even gets to his place and has an ever-expanding collection of keys that conveniently move the plot along, even as he seems to comment on that fact. The film takes the piss out of any and all authority figures, and even has some funny things to say about tastemakers. Fifteen beach pictures I've made. It's the first time I've ever been to a beach. Damnedest sight I ever saw in my life. However, title, title. We need a title. Uh, bikini Vampire. I was a teenage bikini vampire. I married a teenage bikini vampire. As much as I like this movie as a whole, special shout-outs have to go to Lola Albright, who plays Marie, Barbara Ann's mom. She's a cocktail waitress who exudes such life and fun from her taboo profession and her sisterly relationship with her daughter. She really plays out like the only real person in this movie. This, unfortunately, is exploited in a way that makes me think of Ellen Burstyn's performance in the ultimately emotionally manipulative Requiem for a Dream uh, when Lola's Marie meets the mother of Barbara's crush, played by Ruth Gordon, she's basically slut-shamed into suicide. In a scene that I find hard to watch, she's so good. The screenwriter, George Axelrod, twists the knife during this part of the film, having Molly Mock murder Marie, but only after we see her suffer and reach out for help, even to her unsympathetic ex-husband. 
So as an aside, Lola Albright, who I'm in love with now, has uh, a couple of jazz albums, one produced by Harry Mancini called Dreamsville from 1959. And uh, in her role as Edie Hart on TV's Peter Gunn, had a chance to sing cool tunes on TV. And I especially love the YouTube clip of her rendition of How High the Moon, where she gives the signal for her friend Shorty Rogers to play the solo. So speaking of real... Incidentally, Molly Muck, like many psychopaths, is so solipsistic that he has a rant about Barbara Ann's love interest not being real. And here's the scene where he plays back a recording he just made of them making out. All right. Be mad. I'm not mad. I think it's funny. You and that toy person. How could I be mad? You know, St. Bernard or whatever his name is. He's not real. He's like a toy they manufacture. Yeah, like one of the Ken and Barbie dolls. Yeah, you dress them, undress them. You buy them clothes and you wind them up and their little hearts go lub-a-dub, lub-a-dub. But they're not real. Alan, I don't care what you say. I think he's beautiful. And not only that, I want him. With its virtuoso opening that goes on for about 18 minutes before presenting the first plot complication, The Warped Ones, a.k.a. The Weird Lovemakers, grabbed my attention like few films I've experienced. We, as the audience, are treated to one of my favorite handheld camera experiences of all time. In black and white, we follow juvenile delinquent Akira as he is busted during a pickpocketing operation, goes to juvie jail, where he both suffers mental and physical trauma, and then refines his craft, uh, which is depicted in an astoundingly stunning uh, opening credit sequence involving involving short, freeze-framed tableaus and jazz music featuring Max Roach on drums. Here, I should explain that jazz is the fuel to the fire for these wayward youths, Everyone, most of all Akira, is mad, mad, mad for jazz. There are uh, hoods who seethe and snarl and swing as they exude violence, or at least adolescent obsession with jazz. Of the uh, films I'm talking about today, this one is probably the most quote-unquote unhinged in its portrayal of young criminals, and there is uh, rape involved in it. Uh, It is a singular film from 1960, And I can't really play you much in the way of clips because it's all in Japanese, but I will play you this. This is towards the beginning of the film where uh, our two anti-heroes get out of uh, the pokey and steal a car. And we see as Akira is obsessed with finding jazz on the radio as he drives. And you see how these people are just, (laughs) there are snarling creatures. Like there's a guy, he growls at the sun. This is what kind of movie we're talking about here, folks. I hope you enjoy it. It's called The Warped Ones, a.k.a. The Weird Lovemakers. And please, as part of uh, my service to CGSW and you, the citizens of uh, Calgary and the world, please check it out. Let's go!
Thanks for listening to Artslink this month. See you folks again in September.